welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. I'm excited about today's talk here in the next few minutes. And it begins with, I believe it was, we always decorate for Christmas the day after Thanksgiving, and somewhere in that week, as we were decorating, Amy was kind of in this panic and said, I need you to go, I need you to find my Chex Mix mixing bowl. And Chex Mix is a big deal in our house. Once Amy starts making, baking the Chex Mix, that, the house smells like, and you know, we start saying, now it's Christmas, now it's Christmas in our house. Uh, this is a tradition, it's a recipe from her mom. And she couldn't find the big bowl. I mean, we've got bowls, but apparently we can only make checks in the big silver bowl. And she couldn't find it. And so she was sort of like panicked, like, I need you to find it. And I am uh, attributed with sometimes looking for something for like a minute or a minute and a half. And this was one of those times I went in the garage, I looked on the shelf, I came in and I told Amy I couldn't find the mixing bowl. And she was like, already? You're already done? Like, I just asked you, and I was like, well, I looked, and I didn't see it. And so um, this is what has become kind of known as passive searching in our house. Um, And here's the mixing bowl, by the way. So I did find it, and I thought I'd bring it this morning. This is the magic Chex Mix mixing bowl in our house. I did find it in the garage on the shelf where I had already looked. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times, we've been married 29 years, I can't tell you how many times, you know, Amy will say, just open your eyes, or, you know, and you probably hear that in your house. If you would just open your eyes, you would see it. And it was about the length. I only spent about a minute looking for it. Okay, so later that week, I don't know if it was YouTube or on the news, but some guy somewhere out in Missouri or Iowa, sold one of his childhood football cards for like $70,000. And I went into a panic looking for my football cards because I collected a lot of cards. I, have, I still have 2,500, maybe 3,000 football cards. And it was a Dwight Clark, I think it was a Dwight Clark from the 49ers card that sold for like $71,000. And I went on my own search And I can tell you, this wasn't a passive search. I didn't look for a minute or for two minutes. I tore our storage room in the basement apart. Boxes were out. Amy's like, what in the world are you doing? I'm in the garage. We decide that they must not be in our house. They must be in my parents' basement. So I call my parents. I'm willing to drive an hour to Winchester in search of my football carts. And I did find them, they were actually in our basement, and we've got a a few pictures here. I mean, I've got thousands, and this is some of them. So I find, I've got not one Dwight Clark, I think I I found seven, uh, which I think is in the next picture here. And it turns out, so I went to a, a dealer, this is a long process, it took me about a month to find. The dealer told me that the Dwight Clark card that sold for $70,000 online, mine is for some reason worth 38 cents. So I don't, know, I don't know what's the deal, and I'm maybe going to get a second opinion. I just haven't had time yet. But lots and lots of different cards. Sidebar, this is just a note. Just, this doesn't really matter for the morning. But when I was a kid and I was collecting cards, and I was probably up to 500 or 1,000 cards, the, the card shop owner said, you know, a lot of people, a lot of kids your age will, will find a player that's 
had a really good career or is having a good career and kind of predicts, oh, I bet someday his card will be worth a lot of money, you should think about that. And I told my dad, and he said, well, let's not decide that yet. Let's spend a couple weeks. I spent a couple weeks on it, and I decided on O.J. Simpson. And I got his entire collection. I think um, it's, uh, I think maybe the next picture. Um, yeah, I... I think I ended up with every O.J. Simpson card, and now those cards are worth like, you know, 12 cents or a dollar. Um, this is what we call passionate searching. We have passive searching or looking in our house, and then we have passionate searching and looking. And I have talked with so many people so many people who will sit here in our seats on a Sunday morning or will listen along with us online and they will say to me over coffee or want, want, want to talk about where they are in faith that they want to encounter God. They want to have an experience that's real. They want to be connected to him. They want to feel connected to him in life. But they just don't know why, and then what will, what will, the words that will come out next you know, vary, but they're all kind of the same. They don't know why they're not chosen by God to be close to him or to have special experiences with him. Or God just seems so silent with me. People have told me, Brad, I, I sincerely believe you know God or feel close to God or you see him do things in your life. I just don't. And it, it, it can be easy to interpret as if God hasn't picked you. And you know what's ironic about this is I felt that for a long time. I grew up in church, and I just, why does God seem so silent? In Scripture, he wants to be close to us. He made me to walk in his presence and to be used by him in the world and to see him, to see his reality around me. Why does it seem so hard to experience that? And so I was talking on, our church actually did, when I was young, about 20, I was about 20, we did a missions trip to England to help a church there, and I ended up going and helping some of our youth leaders on this trip. And one night at dinner, I was talking to one of our youth leaders, Denny, and I was just kind of talking about this. You know, I, 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 I do believe in God. I'm not really questioning his existence. I just can, I feel so far from him sometimes. And then he started talking to me about searching, seeking for him, like really pursuing God. And he told me, you know, God pursued us. Jesus is the only religious story. When you look at the world religions, he's the only one who came down to us. All other religions require that we earn our way up to God. We work our way up to his favor. Jesus, without any working on our part or deserving on our part, chose to come down to us. And so this was a really compelling conversation. Here I am all these years later, I'm, I'm telling you this story. And I've shared this with some of you. Some of you have heard this before. This profound moment that really sparked a lot of faith in me and my, my journey with Jesus really took a profound step after this conversation with, with, with Denny. And he told me that he had struggled with this. That he, in his own life, Years earlier, he had questioned God's existence. He was questioning whether he was an atheist. Or whether, and for some reason, he ended up in this field with a Bible. He carried a, 
a, a Bible out into a field. I don't know if it was behind his house. I, I, I can't remember, but I remember him describing. He was in the middle of this field with a Bible, and he opened this scripture in, in the book of Jeremiah. And he challenged me. He said, Brad, I'm going to challenge you to read this. When we get back to the United, when we get back to Virginia, spend a month reading this and talking to God about what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. Now, we're going we're gonna to start just a few verses earlier, and I want to give you the context here. This is the nation of Israel, which was relevant to God's plan in the Old Testament. They were God's chosen people to be not his favorite, not to stand out among all peoples of the earth. They were chosen by God to be his representatives to all other nations, that they would extend God's love, God's voice. God's story to all other nations. And they fail royally in this plan, and Jesus would eventually come and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, as it's called, uh, the call to Abraham and his people, the people Israel, to be the blessing, a blessing to all nations. And in this story of Israel choosing their own gods, their own priorities, straying from God's plan and God's purpose, and then they get themselves into a crisis and they call out to God, and this becomes the cycle of the Old Testament. God finally sees that the best way to, to recapture the heart of his people is to allow them to be captured, to be taken slave into what's called the Babylonian captivity. Persia, Babylon specifically, captures the people of Israel and leads them away from their land into Babylon. And it's in this context, in Jeremiah, where God is speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, who are in captivity now. For I know the plans I have for you. This is a very commonly read scripture in, in churches. You'll see it on social media a lot. It sometimes is taken out of context. The context is God is saying, even though I've allowed you to experience this crisis... I'm allowing it because I'm trying to recapture your heart. I'm trying to strip away from you the distractions and the other gods and the other priorities. I'm calling you once again to pursue me. And something very special happens when you pursue me as the source of life. Okay, so that's the context here. For I know the plans I have for you. They're not plans of destruction. I'm not trying to mess with you. I'm not trying to leave you abandoned into slavery. My plans are to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me. Once, I've re, once I have your attention again, you will call on me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Israel's questioning, why does it seem like God's not listening? He's saying, I am listening, and you will see that I'm listening once you return to me as your first pursuit. Okay, and then comes the verse that Denny shared with me that he read sitting out in that field when he was young, and then here we are in England on this trip at dinner, and he's telling me, read Jeremiah 29, 13, Brad. It profoundly changed my life, and it profoundly changed my life because I did. I came home, and I did what my youth leader uh, challenged me to do. I spent about a month rereading one sentence and talking to God about this sentence. You will seek me, God says, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will find me. God says as a promise, you will 
find me. This is very, this is called an imperative. It's a, it's a command in the Hebrew, a command with a promise attached to it. If you do this, you will. There's no question about it. You will find me. You will find me when you. And I, in prepping for this morning, just in my, my, my journaling and my prayer time, you know, as I think ahead on Sundays and what is it that I really feel like God is directing us to look at and to hear, I just, I, I pause here. I've never really in this verse stopped to think about the you and the you will find me. You will search for me. You will find me. The you, this is you and me hearing the spirit of God that we're no longer going to forfeit God's purpose, his closeness, his activity in our lives to the people up there on stage, to Pastor Brad, to, to church leaders, to people who understand the Bible better than I do. We so easily forfeit what God wants to do in our lives, in your personal life, when we Sometimes it's like this warped humility. Well, I, I don't know as much as they know. I don't have answers of faith for people at work like, like other people at church would. That's actually not humility. This is a weird form of pride. It's, it's a fear. I fear that I won't have the answers. I fear that I'm limited in some way, and so I'm going to remove myself as being qualified the way people around me are qualified. That is not what God is telling us here. He's saying, you, you will search for me. You will find me. Stop forfeiting your role with God, your activity with God, your experience with him. Stop forfeiting it to another group, a larger group of people. Maybe a leader or a church leader. You will seek me. Seeking here isn't a passive searching. Like, I think I'll just give my mind to God for an hour this week. This is how we often think of Sunday mornings. And I'm really challenging this this year. If you've heard me say this already in 2024, I'm, gonna, I'm going to keep at it. This idea that we've given God one hour on Sunday morning, we looked at that. That's 2% of our week. I think it's 1.8% of our week, 2% of our week. God is saying, when you seek me, when you choose, when you make the decision to seek after me, this is not looking out on the garage shelf really quick during a commercial <laughs> in a football game that I'm watching so I can tell Amy, yeah, I looked, I couldn't find it. This is seeking. This is tearing things apart, pulling things off the shelf. I am going to find my God because he came into this world to find me. And see, a lot of people who don't seek they don't actually seek God. They go to church. Maybe they play church. Maybe we, we're, we're down. We're, we're battling discouragement in some way. And so we put on that, the, the, the worship song and we try to get our heads kind of connected again to God. I want to be reminded of who God is. In those emergency moments, those kind of crisis of faith moments, we often, that person is often the person that thinks, well, God's already done it. Jesus came close to me. He's done the work. So where is he? And what we miss is the relationship. In this challenge, in this call of God, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is a relationship God is describing. This isn't 2,000 years ago I came to the earth to come close to humanity, and now you can just coast in the wake of what I've done for you. God's calling us to meet him halfway. 
You don't earn your way to God. You can't do anything that earns his favor. But he does ask us to seek him in relationship, to pursue him, to search for him, to chase after. This, this literally translated means to chase after. When you seek me with all your heart, with all your heart means as the most important part of my life, as the most important pursuit of my life. Yes, our retirements matter. Yes, your career matters. Yes, our kids' educations matter. The degree that you're working on right now, yes, these things matter. We see in Scripture, God wants us to work hard. Does he care about the homes we live in? Of course he does. But then there's this thing called first pursuit, our first priority, our first love. Jesus used the words first love. With all your heart means this is now my, my most important pursuit in life. Now, the Old Testament, New Testament can be confusing. This is happening today. I'm in conversations constantly about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know what? Does this matter anymore from the Bible? It seems like Israel is still God's chosen people, and this can be confusing. And we'll save that larger conversation for another time. But I remember growing up in, in, in church being super confused about laws to Israel. And many, many of the Mosaic laws to Israel applied just to Israel geographically, ethnically, um, relationships with neighboring countries is what many of the laws of God had to do with in terms of modeling the heart and character of God for the time they lived in, the region they lived in. This is a universal instruction in the Old Testament. This applies for all time and all people. And we know this because Jesus carries the same language in the New Testament. We see it consistent. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Seek first my kingdom, Jesus said. It's the same word. Seek, chase after my kingdom. Not the, not the kingdom, the, the, the prosperity, the, the prominence of this world. Seek after what matters to me and my kingdom. We looked a couple weeks ago at the start of the series in Mark chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. I mean, that's everything. That's all of you. With every part of your being, your mental energy. Give God all of your pursuit. These are words of Jesus. This is a very Old Testament and New Testament principle of God. He's looking for you and me. Not to work and impress him and so that he loves us because of the works we're doing, but in relationship to pursue him because he's pursued us. And I think a lot of people are just left. Where's God? I don't hear him. I don't see him active in my life. And as I drill in and I just start to ask some questions, well, t tell me about your relationship with God. How, when, you, when you pray, well, Brad, when you say pray, I, I, I don't really pray. I'm... You know, I've, I've got busy job demands and I've got to get to work early in the morning. And what I discover is we all want to encounter this remarkable God. We want to see him active. We want to experience his reality. But a lot of us just don't have time. We don't have time to pursue him, to seek after his words, his instructions, his heart, to allow his shaping to happen. And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to just pull one verse out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is in verse 6. Matthew 5, verse 6. Jesus is in the list of what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are these people. And it's this upside-down, upside-down view of his kingdom. 
You live in a world, you live in a kingdom, Jesus says, where the wealthy are honored. Kings are honored. Famous people are honored. Well, blessed in my kingdom, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. My heart is with those who grieve, those who are lonely. And, you know, he goes through this list. And we come to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This is another way to say what we read in Jeremiah. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, again, when I was young, young in my faith, righteousness, it sounds like such a big biblical word. I think I went years, maybe decades, without really understanding what is righteousness. It just means, like, just try to do good. Try to be a good person. That's not what righteousness means. So, and the reason I pull this verse out, verse 6, is it becomes the central teaching. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters. It becomes the central point of the main teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is this verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus goes on here in just a couple paragraphs and starts to break this down over chapters of what he means by this. What, what hungering and thirsting for righteousness looks like. Now, righteous, I looked it up in, the, in, in Merriam-Webster. It's the quality of being morally right. That's what righteousness means. In our language, in our society, righteousness is the quality or the state of being morally right. But this is actually a, a, a challenge when you pursue God, if you're serious about seeking God, if you take his word seriously, because the state, if this is what righteousness means, it's the state of being morally right, well, who determines who's in that state? Who determines morality? Is it countries? Does each individual country get to determine what's moral? Is it the U.S. Constitution? Is it moral relativism? Moral relativism had a great run in the 90s and early 2000s. The idea that there's no absolute truth. The absolute truth in this world, in this universe, is what I determine is right for me. I am the best judge of what's right about relationships, about other people, about the world in general. Well, that ran into trouble pretty quickly. It took about a decade or so before we realized, well, everybody's in conflict. If you believe it is morally right to take a farmer's farm away from him or her, or to have a neighborhood of people move out of their homes so that those homes or the farm can be plowed over and so larger homes can be built in the name of some kind of financial progress for the city. If you believe that's morally right, but the person sitting two or three seats away from you believes it's actually destructive, who's right? And who determines, who determines who's right? This is the problem with moral relativism. See, in Scripture, God tells us, I'm right. And you experience me, you actually see me work, not just around you, but through you in this world. You see and experience my reality when you seek, when you hunger and thirst for what's right to me, God says. This is, this is actually the core of righteousness. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just re redefine here, according to God's definition that we see in Scripture, 
Um, righteousness is actually what's right in God's eyes. What he sees as right. Rather than trying to get God to do what I think is right, what I want him to do. What we, you and I, believe is right. Righteousness is when you and I begin to ask. We begin to care and ask about what God thinks is right. See, the alternative is self-righteousness. Those are really the choices. It's either God holds absolute truth. He knows when I walk into work on Tuesday. He knows the, the angry boss that I've got to confront. He knows the, the, as a parent and the challenges I have as a parent. He knows what's right. He has the solution. He has the answer. I'm going to seek him. If we reject that, we eventually, inevitably, end up in some version of self-righteousness. And another way to describe righteousness is living in right relationship with God and others. Okay. When is the last time you were really hungry? And this is a kind of a dangerous question for Americans and Americans that live in our generation and live in, you know, a metropolitan area. I don't know if we've ever really been hungry, actually. A better example for me personally is another football <laughs> reference. Some of you who aren't football fans probably get tired of me referencing football, but just forgive me and just try to love me anyway as your pastor. When I played high school football, we did two-a-day practices. We actually a couple times did three-a-day practices. In August, it's, you know, the humidity in Virginia is super hot. But most, most of them were two-a-days. We would go out in the morning, practice, come in, shower, and then go back out and practice again. Um, and they were called two-a-days. And I remember there were days where we're running play schemes or whatever we're doing, and all we're talking about in the huddles is the water station. We cannot wait until the whistle blows and we can go to, I mean, it, it, and it's just like a frenzy. It was like we had been in the desert for a month. I mean, it was so hot. We were so, and I remember, it still stands out to me, how thirsty I was. I mean, we're distracted. We're not really paying attention to plays where it's probably dangerous in the 80s. This was probably physically dangerous, you know, what, what high school football teams did. I was so thirsty. It's all I wanted. You could have offered me $10,000 as a high school student. I would have said, nope, I'll take the water. Hunger and thirst, those who hunger and thirst, blessed. You will experience. Blessed means you will encounter me, my reality. You will walk in the blessing of God. You will be used by me. I will speak through you. You will see me do things in your life that leave you in awe and you only can say that must be God. There's no other explanation. This is all the summary of blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right to God. What he sees as right. What he sees as broken in our world. I'm so tired in this 2024. Here we are, and I'm going to reference this a lot, and I think I'm going to do a pre-election series in the fall. I'm not completely decided yet, and it's actually going to have nothing to do with politics. It's going to have everything to do with God and his kingdom. I'm so tired of hearing people who follow Jesus, and they're committed to their churches, who talk as if right and wrong can be found in Republican or Democrat. 
that the right of the world is some kind of political solution. Jesus is saying, nope, you're only going to walk in my blessing and see my reality and actually experience the living God in your home and in your life and in your relationships when you thirst for what's right to me. What I see is broken in the world. What I see is the grounding of a healthy relationship. What I see is the practical solution for your life right now, at your job or in school. Jesus, in another example, just to reinforce Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Passionate pursuit, passionate seeking, not passive. Another example, Luke 15. I've, I've often said Luke 14 and 15 are my favorite two chapters in Scripture, and that's, that's tough because there's many, many, but these are profound chapters where the Pharisees, the religious arrogant leaders are in such contrast to Jesus, they end up plotting because of this dialogue that's happening, they plot his death. The crucifixion actually begins as a result of these two chapters because they can't believe the audacity of this man to claim that he's from God and he's including unclean people. He brings to a dinner at a Pharisee's house an, a, a, a man with a skin disease. And in the Pharisee's world and their kingdom, their righteousness, that man's unclean. He's sinned, he's done something wrong. Jesus brings this unclean person as his guest of honor to this dinner. And it turns into this huge spiritual fight. And in this context, Jesus is explaining in Luke 15, his heart of pursuit. When we say, and we're going to just begin here in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He constantly has broken people, sinful people, unclean people around him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are arguing and muttering. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them? He can't be the Messiah. He should only have clean and righteous people around him. So then Jesus, as a response, tells them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 that are healthy and together in community? He leaves them in the open country and he goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. See, in your kingdom, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you say... That someone who's lost, they're destitute, they're financially hurting, they've done something wrong. They've brought this on themselves. Maybe there's a lesson they're going to learn in this. Not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, you pursue this person. Yeah, but maybe drugs were involved, or maybe it was their childhood, or maybe it's a decision. Jesus says, I leave the flock sitting together in community on a Sunday morning, building relationships, and I go after the one. This is what my kingdom looks like. And then he goes to another. <laughs> That's not good enough. That parable wasn't enough. Jesus is emphatic here. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And just like with the sheep, when she finds it, she calls her friends. And has a dinner that turns into a party and they celebrate that she found this precious lost coin. Just as the shepherds celebrated finding the one lost sheep. And then he goes to the prodigal son story. And regardless of your experience with church, 
you've probably, you're probably somewhat familiar with the story, the son who leaves with his dad's inheritance and he spends it on prostitutes and wild living and then he comes to his senses in a pig's pen eating the food of pigs on a farm and says, I'll go home, but I won't go home as my dad's son anymore. I'm not worthy to be his son. I'll go home and ask him to make me one of his servants. And in verse 20, so he got up and went to the father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. It's a, the picture we have here Jesus gives us is the dad is searching every morning throughout the day, just watching the horizon. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son says, Father, I've sinned against God and also you. I've wasted all of your money. And when the word earlier, you know, that used prostitutes, you're like, wait, what? Like, this is serious. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, the father ignores what his son has said. I'm not worthy. I need to be. He calls to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This is royal. This is royal language. This is a picture of royalty. The prince is home. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Okay, now you may be familiar with these stories. A lot of you, I'm sure, are. And we see God's heart here. Sure we do. That's the point, isn't it? We see God's heart. God's willing to leave the 99% for the 1%. But the confused or hurt or lost. We see God tearing the house apart to find the one precious coin, you know, representing lost people. He's watching the horizon, anxiously waiting for his son to come home, like this this deep, passionate pursuit, seeking. Yes, Luke 14 and 15 definitely are describing God's heart. But what Jesus is intentionally doing is showing us his kingdom. Yes, the king operates this way. The king is a passionate pursuer of those who are lost and those who are broken, of his children. But the expectation is, and so should be, the people of his kingdom. That's another significant point Jesus is making here. This describes the relationships within my kingdom. God pursues passionately his people. And those of us in his kingdom should be passionate pursuers of what matters to him. What's right to him. Righteousness. This is describing the heart of our God to pursue us to the ends of the earth. But it's also describing, describing the expectation of what the people of his kingdom think, what we want, what we crave, what we do. We pursue the will, the purpose, the timing, the strength of God. So how do we act on this? How do, I'm going to invite our band. Our band's going to close our morning. We're going, to, we're going to give God a worship response this morning before we leave. But before we give him the worship response, I want to talk about just a couple other a few other practical steps here. How do we actually seek him? If you're sitting here today, if you're listening to this today and you're thinking, okay, this resonates. I want to pursue, I'm not pursuing God the way I should. I need to be a pursuer. I need, I've been a passive searcher and pursuer of God. I need to be passionate, but how? 
What does that look like? I come to church on Sundays. First of all, we're going to start with, I mean, this may seem basic, and to some of you, you may kind of like, well, duh. But when we practice this, it actually moves us into lockstep with God and his reality. We need to tell him. We need to tell him this is our heart. We need to talk to him. We need to talk to God about this. God, I think sometimes I'm lazy. I have these desires to really understand your words in Scripture more, but I keep putting it off. God, there's something in me that holds me back. My, my work is so busy, and being a mom just seems to be just consuming. I feel like I don't have any margin. Start talking to God about this. I want to become a pursuer of you, God. And take specific time. You know, if 10 minutes seems simple or basic, start with 10 minutes. This adds up. When you look at the cumulative at the end of a week, 10 minutes a day, if that's your starting place, I'm going to sit with coffee. I'm going to go on a short walk around my block. And I'm going to talk to God about my heart becoming a pursuing heart. I want to be close to you. That's where it started for me. I didn't pretend, oh, look, I'm, I'm close to God, or I'm going to go into church and act like I'm close to God. I told God, I don't feel close to you, but I want to be. That's a powerful prayer. It's honest. You're already moving. You're already stepping out of the kingdom of this world. You're stepping into God's kingdom, and you say, this is what, I want what you want. I want to be closer to you. Reagan, uh, Reagan and DJ one night, just a couple weeks ago at the house, we, I don't know what got us into this conversation, but Reagan said, um, you know, my, my prayer time's been pretty good lately, my time with God, but I struggle because sometimes I just don't know what to say. I just, you know, and so, and I, I, as soon as she said this, I relate it. I remember years ago, this was kind of my battle, like, okay, it's time to pray. God wants me to pray, so I'll pray. What do I pray? And I would pray for my aunt, you know, in Culpeper, Virginia, that I haven't seen for a few years because I heard she twisted her ankle. And I would pray for the college I'm going to go to someday because that's a good thing to pray about, you know. And, you know, it's like I'm searching. Like, I, I, I'll pray for my parents. I'll pray. It's like I'm kind of winging it, making it up. And I told, I told Reagan that night, I said, figure out what you think matters to God right now, this month, for your life. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's uh, a way that God wants to use you in life in some way. Maybe it's a prayer for your church. Maybe God wants you to see something happen in our church and he wants you to pray about it. And devote a month to talking to God about that and just see what happens. See, this is now praying God's righteousness instead of like, I'll, I'll kind of think of what to pray. What matters to you, God? I see in Scripture... My, my time, just, I keep thinking about this person at work. They keep coming to mind. I think you're putting them in my mind. I'm going to pray about them for a month. God, use my words. Help me to be a good friend. This is a powerful way. It changes everything. You're no longer praying what you think. You're praying what you think matters to God. Okay, number two, listen. Listen to God and listen to his words. You're joking yourself, you're fooling yourself if you think you can be close to God without listening. Try that in a marriage. Try that in a friendship. If you're not listening to God's words, you're filling your hunger. 
with food that satisfies for a moment, but it will not. It will not satisfy you for very long. And it will eventually become poisonous. Any other filling of your first priority will eventually become toxic to your soul. You need to, and if you don't know where to read God's words, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I always point people towards Luke. Find a group. We now have a group here at Dulles, Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Find a group that will just help you process understanding God's words and Scripture. And then the third, recognize what you believe. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to be exactly right. This is a part of faith. Recognize what you believe God wants you to do. In a relationship, in your neighborhood, maybe with your finances, maybe with a gift or serving in some way, something that you think keeps coming to mind that God wants you to do, and do it. Do it. Actually do it. Actually write the check. Actually sign up to serve on the team. Actually walk across your street in the neighborhood to the neighbor's house. And stop listening to that voice that isn't God. Well, what if the baby's asleep? If I, if I knock too loud, yeah, I'll just, I'm not going to go knock on their door today. It might be bad timing for them. If they keep coming to mind, it's probably God putting them on your mind. Be the kind of person that pursues God, seeks after God with your whole heart by pursuing what you think is his will, what matters to him. And you will see the reality of God become so clear to you. You'll start talking with, where, not where's God, but Brad, this thing happened. Some of us are on the sidelines, and we like being on the sidelines. We have our sideline pass. And we take selfies, and we put it on social media. Look, I'm on God's sideline. Look, look at me. And it's like, look how close I am. The players are right there. You know, and we just had the Super Bowl. How cool would that be? I would love to have a sideline pass to the Super Bowl. But see, it doesn't work in God's kingdom that way. He's looking for all of us to be, he wants us in the game. We think we're close by being on the sidelines. Like, hey, I'm close. I'm kind of listening to the songs. I, I kind of take seriously what Brad says on Sunday mornings. He is looking for people who will pursue his interest, his heart, his healing and compassion for broken people. And I'm telling you, that's all it takes. You seek him and what matters to him with your whole heart, you're going to see the reality of God, no doubt. Okay, let's stand as we close our time in worship.